Father, every day we are impressed with your grace, your love, your patience. And even though, Lord, we often do not see you, even in the things that are happening around us, we know that you are there because we know that you have us in the focus of your vision, in the palm of your hand, that you're seeking to make us into the image of Christ. And I pray, Father, that we will allow you to convert our desires into your desires. And Lord, that the study of the Word of God will be the primary instrument by which you do that, helping us to understand your nature and your attributes, the true meaning of your name and who you are, not only in the world as a whole, but in our individual lives. Lord, I thank you that you're present here right now this morning, that you care about each one of us intensely, individually, and Lord, that our every need is well known to you. Teach us to believe you and to trust you and to have faith. And Father, I pray that you will meet each individual need in this room this morning and bless the word as it is studied. And I ask, Lord, that you will bless the uh, service that is transpiring at this hour. Be with Frank and Ruth, especially as they minister, and everyone who takes part in the uh, missionary program this morning and in the third hour as well. And then throughout our Sunday school today. And we'll thank you for your presence and blessing in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like again to read the uh, first portion of the 20th chapter of Exodus to keep the ten words, the Decalogue, in continuity here. We have looked at the first two. Uh, Today we'll look at the third, but I'd like to read it again within context. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his, female, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
Those words were delivered within the context of a mighty conflagration on the top of Mount Sinai. The people had witnessed Moses disappear into the cloud. And many of them, I think, probably thought, that's the end of Moses. We'll never see him again. Because it was a mighty tempestuous storm raging on the top of that mountain with fire and smoke, lightning, thunder, and the mountain quivering and shaking. In fact, at, in verse 18, after God has already said all of these things, the scripture says, and all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. This was their view before, this is the view after. As God has delivered these ten words, the Decalogue, to the people through Moses. Sometimes this, along with its expansion in the remaining portion of the uh, Pentateuch, is called the Law of Moses. And it's even referred to the law as the Law of Moses in the New Testament. But we understand, of course, that it is the law of God is given through Moses, and that is the meaning of it. Moses did not make up these laws, and Moses was simply the spokesman of the law that God delivered. And this is really not the beginning of a religion, even though often Judaism is said to have begun at this point. But, but God, as the God of his people, has been the God of his people since the Garden of Eden. And God has manifest himself in a more full way as time passed and as the word of God became published in, in what we might call progressive revelation. But God himself has never changed. He's immutable, never changing. Yesterday, the same as today, as forever. Jesus Christ, Yahweh. And as a result, we need to always perceive it, I think, from that point of view. This separates us from the liberals who want to compartmentalize everything and who, who want to uh, make it as if it's all a, really basically a human invention. That Moses created the Jewish religion of the Old Testament and Paul created Christianity. And that's the way many liberals view it. Rather than seeing it as God simply manifesting himself, revealing himself to his people and his people responding accordingly. So Moses is on the mountain and we don't know how God delivered the word to Moses, whether it was simply spoken or as if you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandment, big fiery ball comes out and just carves the word right into the solid rock. I don't know, it could very well be that it was something like that. But it was very, very dramatic for Moses. And it certainly was dramatic for the people as they stood at the bottom of the mountain and they saw all this great pyrotechnic display before their eyes. They had not been inured to it by going to Disneyland or anywhere else. And, you know, oh well, just another thing like that. No, because the presence of God was there regardless of anything else, and they sensed that. Last week, we looked at the first commandment where God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And we noted two things, that it was a positive statement and it was a negative statement was a negative statement in that they were not to worship anyone or anything else, but it was a positive statement in that they were to worship God. And then he, in the second commandment, he uh, expanded that by explaining exactly what it meant not to worship anything else and talking about idols. And we focused on that and what it meant where God would not leave unpunished those to the third and fourth generation and so forth. Today, I want to focus on verse 7, 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This third commandment is, of course, obviously, closely, inextricably connected to the first two. It says, do not take the name of Yahweh your Elohim in vain. And if we were to kind of do this verse in the amplified way, some of you remember the old Amplified Bible, which uh, used various alternative words, it would read something like this, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God vainly, worthlessly, or selfishly. And taking off on those ideas, I want to uh, focus on what I think this really means. This, man, this uh, commandment is far more deep and profound than many have considered. Most have looked at this command, and I've heard it explained as do, uh, just avoiding cussing in God's name. And so some people will say, gold darn it, you know, because that way they're not saying God, they're not saying damn, and so, you know, they're not violating this commandment. Well, uh, when I was a kid, uh, one of the kids that uh, went to school with me, he would always modify it from God damn it to God ding it, you know, as if that somehow made it different. And, you know, people are impacted about, by this, even though they don't really, I don't think, understand it. It means far, far more than just taking God's word name and sticking it someplace in a sentence. First, I think that it's very, very important to note that the whole focus of the commandment is on the name of God. The name of God. Israel was the very first nation to be given the actual personal name of God that we know of, at least in Scripture. Scripture seems to indicate that specifically. They, they were given his personal name, which we interpolate out of the Hebrew as Yahweh, or as the Germans have transposed it to Jehovah. Apparently, it was derived from the phrase that we read, oh, months back when we were studying the third chapter of Exodus. Maybe that's a year now. I can't remember. But where Moses was before the burning bush and, and he said to God, well, who is it that I shall tell them is sending me? And he, God responds, Hayah, Asher Hayah. I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And from this we derive that we're talking about the eternal immutable, infinite, and expressly stated here in the I am that I am self-existent, omnipotent creator. When you string all those words together, Yem left much out. The thrust is what they were not to worship some anonymous, distant God, not the God of the deists, you know, the, the great transcendent God up there who just kind of flung everything out and got it going and then walked away and, and doesn't want to be bothered with what's going on in planet Earth. Or, or the prime mover of the ancient Greeks, you know, Aristotle, Plato, and their great prime mover who was behind it all, who set all the crystalline spheres up and got them going and, of course, is not in any personal relationship. People were really disturbed by that concept. And so a whole pantheon of Greek gods were invented was invented to personalize God. And so you end up with, uh, with um, Jupiter and, and Juno and Minerva and all the other gods and goddesses as the Romans and the Greeks understood them to kind of personalize them. You know, at least they could get a concept of God rather than this, this, this ethereal prime mover up there somewhere. Well, God is talking about 
the, his people knowing him personally, knowing him individually. And that's why he gave to them his personal name. And they were the only ones up to that moment in history to be so blessed that we know about, at least. As we have noted before, when the scripture refers to God's name, it is not talking about a title or a label, just a word. Rather, the name reveals the nature and the attributes of God himself. In that name can be found all that God is. His nature, his attributes, all of these things I read off to you a moment ago, you know, immutable, eternal, invincible, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all of these things are summed up in that name, Yahweh. Thus, when Peter said to the Sanhedrin that there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, he was not saying that everyone who simply uttered the name of Jesus would be saved. Just by saying Jesus doesn't make me a believer, does not make me a person in the kingdom of God. The word Jesus is not a password. You can't walk up to the door of heaven and go knock, knock, knock and say Jesus and the door flies open. Yet many would want it to be that way, I'm sure. What Peter was meaning, what Peter was saying, was that salvation came through submission to and faith in the nature and the attributes of that person represented by that name. So when we say the name Jesus, we're not just saying of a five-letter word, J-E-S-U-S, -S, is that right? Five letters? <laughs> we're, not, we're not just saying a five-letter word. We're, we're speaking of this, this omnipotent one. And that's why I think it's so grieving. Maybe this doesn't impact you the same way, but I, I don't like it when I hear someone say God. But it seems to be a greater shock when I hear somebody use the name Jesus in a way that is inappropriate. And it just seems like they're, they're, they're driving at the very heart, the very essence of life and what this world is all about. So this commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is not merely a prohibition against the misuse of a word, but it's a, it, it's a, it's a prohibition against the, gr the glib profaning and trivialization of the person of God himself of the very person of God himself, of dragging God down from his throne and sticking him in our stinky streets, in effect, in a profane way. Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. I mean, there is almighty power in that name. In the person that that name represents, the name Yahweh or Jesus, and therefore, to use that name tritely is to toy with omnipotent majesty. You know, it's like a kid playing with a roaring fire. Very arrogant and dangerous thing for the creature to do to the Creator. The ultimate trivialization, of course, is to deny the person and the name of God altogether. And the psalm makes it very clear. The psalmist makes it very clear in a couple of places, in the 14th Psalm and the 53rd Psalm, where he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is the ultimate trivialization, I suppose. 
And of course, the person who does so is therefore well-defined as a fool. The third commandment, I think, must be understood as the prohibition against the use of God's name in any manner whatsoever that does not honor and glorify him. For one example, I, I don't know, you've run across this, I know as well as I have, how many people use the name of God to take the place of a weak vocabulary. They, they just don't know how to say anything to really express what they want to say, so they just keep injecting God somehow in it. God and Jesus and the Lord, and, and the name just peppers their, their, their speech. It's sort of as if they think by using God's name a lot that people are going to perceive them as strong and tough. You know, we've always heard about somebody uh, swearing like a trooper or like a sailor or something like that. Well, to me, that does not indicate that that trooper or that sailor isn't particularly intelligent. You know, uh, not to diminish anybody in here who has been a soldier or a sailor. But those, you know, it's, it's just a lack. There's, there's, they don't know how else to say anything. That's one way. may not be, you know, very profound, but I've run across it in my life. Secondly, and for this I think we have a, a good biblical example, to validate a false statement. Some people frequently swear by God to try to insist that a lie is true or that a failure didn't happen as a cover-up. They will, they will call upon the Almighty. That's a very, very dangerous thing. We all know the story so well, I think, of Ananias and Sapphira, but I'd like to read it again here. Because I think it fits with the concept here. In the fifth chapter of Acts, beginning at verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Well and good, no problem there. And kept back some of the price for it, and, and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now he was simply doing what Barnabas had done, and Barnabas had, of course, been accorded praise and honor within the, the group for having done this, and these people wanting that same kind of uh, praise and honor are attempting to do this also, but in the name of Jesus, they are doing it falsely. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Sometimes ignorance is very costly. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who had buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard these things. I think it's very appropriate to understand that they were using the name of the Lord their God in vain. 
because in the name of Jesus, they were attesting to having brought the full price of the property here. That's how in which they lied to the Spirit of God through Peter. They were saying that they were doing something that was not true. And God was involved in it. God's name was being diminished because they as professing believers were in effect saying in Jesus' name, this is what we have done. And it was a dead lie. And as a result, they were dead people. I think one of the interesting things about this, a little sidelight here, is the fact that in those days, obviously, you didn't have to go trotting off to the corner and have an inquest and all this kind of stuff. They just took them out and dug an hole and dumped them in, you know. Uh, it's probably better the way things are today, but it's very, very much folly to try to use God's name to insist that something is true or something is accurate or to cover up a failure because God is not one to be toyed with and his name to be desecrated in such a way. Thirdly, and actually I suppose hard to totally distinguish from the first one, is using the name of God to put emphasis rather lightly or, or at least thoughtlessly. I, I grew up in a home where uh, we were not a Christian family, and I didn't come to know the Lord until I was a teenager. And my father never really came to know the Lord until he was fairly well on in years. And he had a very strong tongue, and he goddamned almost everything, and uh, used Jesus' uh, name uh, very frequently. He sprinkled his speech with it. And one of the interesting things about that was, and I don't know how it all fits in, but somehow, even though I didn't come to know the Lord until I was in the 14th year of my life, and I grew up in all of that, I never picked it up. God somehow protected me from that, I think, in His sovereign majesty, even though I hadn't come to know Him yet. I didn't pick up that language, and it, it didn't even seem right to me before I knew the Lord. And then afterwards, of course, it became quite offensive, and I did at times try to talk with Him about it, and, you know, at, when I got to be later in my teen years, even though many of you have tried that, to talk with your father when you're a teenager about what it is to come to the Lord, and he's the kind of person it is. It's, it's, it's a tough uh, assignment because you're the kid and he's the adult, you know. And so anyway, he was not too uh, offended by it, but as I said, he didn't really come to know the Lord until he got in very, very serious physical straits and finally submitted to the Lord. But he might God at everything. And I've heard this so much, as many of you have. Oh, my God, how I missed you. My God, how you've changed. My Lord, when we're going to get there. Um, to me, that is absolutely vain use of God's name. Um, what does God have to do with all of that? I mean, God may be superintending our trip, but, you know, to, to use God's name to, to emphasize so thoughtlessly as that, to just drag his name into everything, is, is to deny its holiness and its majesty. And yet you hear it all the time, of course, I, I trust mostly from the mouths of those who have never been transformed, but I think even we as believers have to be really, really careful that we don't trivialize God's name, even for emphasis. It's not necessary, and it doesn't glorify Him. Fourthly, to invoke the Almighty to do our selfish bidding. And this happens all the time. Not, I trust, by believers, but it happens all the time. I heard this so often, 
<laughs> As you know, you, you've heard the little joke. It's humorous in one sense and, and kind of really sad in another. One, one kid grew up and it wasn't until he became an adult that he, didn't, that he discovered that God's second name was not Dammit, you know, because that's all he'd heard all of his life. And that's what I heard. God damn it, God damn him, God damn this, God damn that. That is a very, very serious statement because we are invoking God to condemn something or someone. And we're doing it for our own selfish reason because we are emotionally reacting to a situation that we don't like. So we're trying to invoke the Almighty to do something about it for our own reasons. I'd like to turn to Luke for a minute. Chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning at uh, verse 51. And it came about, when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for them. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Do you not know what kind of spirit you are of? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went on to another village. I mean, they're basically saying, Jesus, will you damn these people? Of course, theoretically, they were doing it in defense of his name, but there was a selfish motivation here. They said, do you want us to call fire down from heaven? I mean, you know, see, they're taking on the attributes of God here. And, uh, you know, there's selfish motivation behind this. Jesus can take care of himself. He's God. Didn't need their help when it came to that. And it was obvious that they didn't understand the attributes of God because God loved these Samaritans as much as he loved them standing there. So why would he any more call fire down from heaven to consume them than he would his own disciples? To me, that's a vain use of God's name, of the Lord's name here. Because in Jesus' name, they're asking if they can, shall not call down fire. They're saying basically, Jesus, damn these people for selfish motivations. Now contrast that, if you will, with an Old Testament story that I think is a pretty neat story from 2 Kings chapter 1. The difference is the attitude. The difference is the express purpose of God. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now this guy's the king of Israel. So he's going to go to the Philistine god to find out if he's going to get well. But the angel of the Lord said to Elisha, um, I'm Elijah, the, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you returned? They said to him, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? 
Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words? And they, they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. In other words, the king is saying, God damn you, come down off this mountain because I'm going to deal with you. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of the fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And it goes on and is repeated. This is very different. Elijah is here saying, If this is what God would have and in defense of his holy name, May it happen. Elijah is not here selfishly deciding he wants to cook these 50 men because he doesn't want to go face the king. It's the name of God that's being defended here. God's name is being vainly used by the king and by these 50 men who are supposed to be Israelites, followers of the God of Israel. They're profaning his name, and so Elijah is saying, God, defend your name. And so God does it. And the contrast between that and what John and James wanted to do to the Samaritans is, is stark, really. Because in one case, God's name is being honored and defended, in the other, it's, it's being vainly used for selfish motivation. I think it's very, very important that this be noted. Fifthly, I think that God's name should be never used as a mantra. Mindless, rote use of God's name in so-called prayer or meditation, or as the scripture says, in vain repetition, hoping that they might be heard for their much speaking. As you well know, there's a very large Christian communion, Christian communion, that uses God's name very much this way. And I don't know if you've ever, of course, if you've come out of the Catholic tradition or if you've ever sat and listened to uh, the Mass and radio or whatever, it just comes over so profoundly how they just rattle through the Lord's Prayer as fast as they can rattle through it numerous times over and over again. It becomes a mantra. It becomes a, 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 a point of trying to reach God through this frequent repetition of God's name in the so-called Lord's Prayer. And I think it's vain, absolutely vain, because it is not honoring and glorifying Him to rattle through something like that and to to, to just use God's name so quickly and so rapidly as if it was nothing more than part of a formula. Then, for example, to say that God is the author of evil is blasphemy. Because the scripture clearly teaches us in James that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. He is immutable, unchangeable ever good. His goodness is his nature. Evil is absolutely foreign to God because it's totally separate from his attributes. Or to do as the cults do, to deny the clear teaching of the triunity of God, of the divinity of Christ. Or to do as the liberal churches do and to deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the efficacy of the atonement, 
are to proclaim that there are many paths to heaven. Whether by Buddha, or whether by Muhammad, or whether by Lao Tzu, or whether by whatever, as long as you really believe it and really put your trust in it and live according to it, you're going to get to the top of the same mountain that we're all going to get to the top of. Many so-called liberal Christians, and I put Christians in quotation marks, to many of them, it doesn't matter to whom or to what you place your faith <coughs> as long as you're consistent and true to your beliefs. All this is to take the name of the Lord your God in vain because it is denying His clearly taught nature and attributes. He gave us this book so we would understand who He is and what He does and how to trust in Him. And to deny those things is to take His name in vain. It's to deny the very essence of who He is. And then finally, it's also vain to attribute to Satan the works of God simply because they don't fit our preconceived notion of how God should work. And to me, as I thought about that, this well-known passage in Matthew 12 uh, came to mind. Uh, beginning at verse 22. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Well, we know who Beelzebub is, don't we? We just read about him, the god of Ekron. I know their thoughts, he said to them. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. <clears throat> How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I... By Beelzebub cast out demons. By whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven, but whoever speaks against, this, against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. To attribute the works of God to the devil is blasphemy. It's to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And specifically, as it applies to the Holy Spirit of God, it's very, very dangerous. One thing I have noted, though, down through time, I've heard of people who said, God damn this and Jesus do that, but I've never heard, now maybe you have, but I've never heard anybody say, Holy Spirit do this or Holy Spirit do that. Very interesting. I'm not saying nobody ever did, but it could be that they dropped dead on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> then lastly, seventhly, the primary thrust of this commandment was to prevent the use of God's name in magical ways. Throughout history, men and women have attempted to manipulate the unseen world through magical formulas. That's why we have shamans. I mean, that's why 
primitive societies everywhere in the world have their wizards, their witch doctors, their witches, their shamans, whatever you want to call them. People whose specific job it is to manipulate the spirit world for the benefit of the physical world. Since the Israelites knew the intimate name of God, they might be tempted to use it to force the spiritual powers to do their own selfish bidding. I think this is a really important concept. I think we have an example of it in Acts chapter 19. Again, this is a bit of a humorous story, except it's tragic at the same time. Acts 19.13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of Je Lord, the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, and this, <laughs> this has got to be, if it weren't coming out of the mouth of, of a demon, it would be truly hilarious. I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul. But who in the world are you guys? Only I don't think he said it so kindly. The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked. I mean, there are seven of them. This is one guy. And I don't think he knows kickboxing or judo or any of the rest of it. He just has, a whole, he just has an evil spirit in him. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon all, them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Also, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. They counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. They were using the name of Jesus in a vain way, and Jesus allowed a holy, uh, uh, an evil spirit to beat the tar out of these guys, and therefore his name was magnified. You don't mess with the name of Jesus. It's serious, serious business. And I think that we can be unwittingly guilty of this. Maybe not in such an overt way. But it's possible for us, if we abuse the privilege of prayer, to be guilty of this. If we use prayer for our own selfish motivations. In James 4.3 we read, You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it upon your pleasures. Puny people trying to manipulate omnipotent deity for their own good. That's the same thing the shaman did, or do. Our, our praying has to be done with an attitude of total submission to omnipotent God, to His will, for the achievement of His purposes, not ours. Whatever we ask for ourselves should be within the plan of God for our lives. That's why we need to know this book. If we don't know this book, we don't know what the plan of God is for our lives. But if we know this book, we do. Thus, to keep using God's name to try to extract from Him the things that we want, oh God, I want, I want, I want, is to use His name in vain. Jesus promised to His disciples in John 14, 6, where He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
Some people take out that phrase and they use that as their key to prayer. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Period. But there are so many other statements on prayer in the Old and the New Testament that have got to be coupled with it to have a correct theology of prayer. Some people talk about the fact that, well, all we need to know is Jesus. We don't need to know any theology. You can't know Jesus if you don't know any theology because that's the study of who Jesus is. Theology, the study of God. And if we don't understand the theology of prayer, we're going to pray wrong. Because just for a, a simple example, if, if we pair this statement I just read to you, if we ask anything in my name, I will do it, with the statement that John gives in 1 John 5, where he says, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We must ask in Jesus' name, but we must ask according to his will. There are those who think that we can twist God's almighty arm. <laughs> Don't try it. What we need to do is bring ourselves into alignment and submission to what his will is, to come to know what he wants, and then we can pray aright and avoid vain praying, which I think is why our prayer life so often is weak, weaker than we'd like it to be anyway. And why the prayer in the church is so weak. And I don't mean just this church, I mean the church universal. Prayer is not what it ought to be. Prayer ought to be one of the key elements of what a church does when it meets, as well as throughout the week in small groups and individually. It's got to be one of the key things we do. But for the most part, it is not. Because we don't really understand the theology of prayer. And our prayer seems to not go very far. And so we give up on it, which is unfortunate. I think we need to learn how to honor and glorify his name in prayers in all these other ways and to avoid using his name in vain. Well, next Sunday we're going to look at another profound and much disturbing commandment, disturbing to some at least, concerning remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. <laughs>